Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Amen. Take your uh, Bible. Let's look at Dr. Luke's Gospel, the Gospel of uh, Absolute Certainty in Luke uh, chapter 6 as uh, we continue our, uh, our study through uh, this wonderful, wonderful Gospel. I've entitled the message today, The Sermon on the Plane. Now, that's not one of Roger's U.S. airplanes. Uh, it's plane spelled a little differently. You notice that. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's the right name uh, for, this, uh, for this sermon. And we're looking at Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 17 and following. Let's, uh, let me read the text. Let's pick it up at 6, verse 17. Uh, and Jesus went down uh, with them and stood on a level place. That's with the twelve. And a large crowd of his disciples were there, and a great number of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming out from him and healing them all. Now notice, verse 20, looking at his disciples, that's a key phrase, Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they execute you, and, uh, or <laughs> excuse, exclude you, and insult you, and reject you. Reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great Great is your reward in heaven, for that is how your fathers treated the prophets, and now the woes. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Well, it's... uh, I've called it the Sermon on the Plain. It's not original with me, but I think it's right. You know, there's something about the first day of school. You know, I, I don't know if you're like me, but uh, it seemed like my sisters couldn't wait for the school to begin, and I came to it uh, very grudgingly, being drawn to the realization that the beauty of the summer days were bidding goodbye. The easy days of summer. In those days, we played uh, baseball and swam at the memorial pool, and yes, I had to cut the grass every week and trim it, Uh, but uh, especially in the early years, they were such wonderful days to to be gone all day, bike riding with my buddies, and the realization, in New York State, we never went to school till after Labor Day, at least we got an extra Monday, but Tuesday, you better show up, and uh, I was drawn to that. My sisters were always all excited, oh! We get to go and learn some more. And I go, <laughs> uh, I went, and uh, they told us we had to come back the next day. You know, I was sort of that mentality, so I don't know if that's where you are. It's funny, it's funny that God would have me spend ten and a half years after high school in school, just kind of like, you didn't like it, maybe you'll get it now, keep going, you know? So to, so, or someone said, if you don't get it right, just keep doing it again. So I don't know what, what's involved there. But the first day of school... Uh, is usually filled with excitement, at least this way. If you come to the resolution, i got to show up, well, you get to see friends that you hadn't seen uh, all summer, and uh, so you get to renew that. And you begin a whole new uh, uh, schedule of classes. Hopefully they're all new and not remedial, right? And it's, <laughs> I know that never happened to any of you. And it's common for teachers, right? I've been a prof and a student, more a student than a prof, that on the first day to uh, pull out the syllabus or in younger grades for the teacher to talk about 
uh, the books that uh, you're going to read and study and the things that you're going to learn. And, uh, and this is what we're going to do this year. And uh, isn't that exciting? Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, I can't wait. You know, and then they tell of all the assignments in the college and post-grad level. You know, it's, uh, you've got to write a 40-page paper, type it, make sure it's Turabian, and do the research, do quotes, uh, footnotes, and, you know, get through all that. In the younger grades, boys and girls, this is the math book, and you're going to learn long division and uh, long division. In our house, we were always scared of that because uh, my brother really bombed it bad, and he was the first one to go through, and we thought, oh, this is going to be terrible, terrible, terrible. Some of you don't even know what it is because you th- then we always have calculators, you know, like, and all, all that kind of stuff. So the teacher talks about the class, talks about what you're going to do, depending what grade it is, and then usually talks about how you can earn good grades. Learn your spelling words every week, and you'll get a VG. That's what they used to give in our day, very good. And finally, I figured out how to do that, and it took a, took a while. But uh, the class usually begins on that first day with warnings and encouragements. You know, I used to tell in the seminary uh, classes, I don't give out any grade, you earn it. You know, just do what I'm saying, and you get a C. If you want to do it with higher distinction, you get a B. And if you want to do it with the highest, you get an A. You know, so that's how that happens. You know, so go down and read the reserve readings. Get your work done. Don't turn in slop. Make sure it's your own. Uh, read and be diligent. You're students. You know, it's funny about I always thought it was funny with students. They always cheer if you cancel class. You know, like, <laughs> you know, education is something we pay for, and it's getting more and more expensive, have you noticed? We pay for it, but we're not really sure we want it. You think about that. Yay, no class today, you know. And it's always in college, depending on your rank, you know, whether you're an, a lowly instructor or assistant professor or associate professor or full professor, how long do students have to wait till you show up? If you're, if you're an instructor, you better be there at the get-go or they have permission to leave right away five minutes if you're an assistant. They'll wait maybe 10 if you're an associate. If you're a full professor, 20 minutes they'll hang around, thinking the old guy will probably show up or whatever. Maybe he's in the wrong classroom. You know, we're not sure he's in his right mind anyway, right? (laughs) But uh, that's the way it is. And then school's out. He's not here. We're out of here. We're gone. Well, the the professor will say, or the teacher, you can do this. You can write a term paper. You can do the reading. You can whatever it is, right? Warning. If you don't do it, you're in trouble. If you do do it, and you can, you'll finish and finish well. Well, that's the first day of school from what I remember, right? That's what it is. Well, our text today finds, I say all that because it's, it, the text finds the Lord Jesus Christ beginning what I'll call his very first formal day of internship with the Twelve. Now, I didn't read it, but before Easter and before we looked at the sayings from the cross, the seven words of Jesus, remember... Uh, in, in Luke 6, verse 12 and following, that the Lord at this appointed time went up onto the mountain, prayed all night, and then he selected the 12 that would be with him. They were going to be apprentices or interns. They were going to watch him, be with him, follow him for a period of time. He would give them some assignments. He would critique them. And then finally, he would give them more as they were able to And then finally, he would be crucified. He charged them not to do the same thing throughout the whole world. Well, they're up in the mountain, and uh, he selects them, and now they come down. That's what the text says uh, uh, in, uh, where was that, verse verse 17. He went down with them. They were up in the mountain. This is not the Sermon on the Mount. Some people will confuse it because the Beatitudes sound sort of familiar. Blessed are, blessed are. But the blessings, there are more differences than there are commonality here. And what it is is, is what is common with most uh, uh, pastor teachers or preachers is uh, they'll, they'll use messages and repeat messages and they'll tailor make the message to the audience. So some, some men are, are itinerant. Uh, ministers, and they'll have 8 or 10 or 12 or 15 messages and discern what God has them, and they'll, they'll use them and adapt them for, the, for the, uh, the group that they're speaking to. And so the Lord has a similar type of thought. They're, 
the blessed, the blessed, the blessed. Like, oh, we've heard this before. No, no, it's not the same occasion. He's coming down. He's got the 12 with him. There's going to be a crowd that meets him at the bottom that want uh, and, and, and need, uh, have a lot of physical needs. But then he's going to turn in the midst of it. And he's going to speak these words directly to his disciples. That's why I said it's key that verse 20 is important. Looking now uh, at his disciples. Here it is. School is open. Here's the first day of their formal gathering. You see, they, they from time to time had followed him and, and as the group was getting bigger and larger, but now they are the commissioned uh, apprentice uh, disciples of the Lord and, uh, and so on. So he is teaching them. His very first lesson is to instruct them what? Here's a quote from one of the ancients. To prize what the world calls pitiable, and to suspect what the world thinks is desirable. Now, that's not bad. Beware, he's going to tell them. Don't get sucked into the strong vortex of the culture and think that uh, somehow that's what it means to be a disciple. And in fact, do the, just the reverse. Prize what the world despises and uh, despise what the world cherishes, and you'll probably be doing right as you follow me as a servant of Christ. And so he begins to teach that. Now, you know from the things that we've said before, most of these are going to suffer brutally by the world. And they're going to know these things firsthand in, in their service and in following Christ. And so they will live out the reality of what he's teaching. And to us, uh, to a, a larger and smaller extent, it will be true. So Jesus both warns, like the first day of class, you can, he warns it's coming, danger, uh, don't be surprised, and he assures them. You can do this as disciples empowered by the grace of God and the Spirit of God as they go forth into the world for him. You see, uh, uh, we're going to see in our, our, our text here two contrasting results. You know, you have the blessing and the, and the result, and you have the woe uh, and the result of that. They are the two contrasting results that you and I can expect by our choice to follow Jesus or not. You see, he's speaking directly to them, but to us by way of inference and 20 centuries later. Not as apostles, not capital A. We're not the apostles. There are none today, but we're certainly sent ones into this world for Jesus Christ and to live and to let the light of the gospel radiate from us. And in that sense, we are sent ones. Make disciples as you go, as you go along your daily life. Some of you will go far-flung places. Some of you won't leave beyond 50 miles. Make disciples. And when that happens, don't be messed up in the head with the current values of the world system. And it may happen that you may be called to suffer, suffer uh, horrendously. Maybe it's suffering just in mild areas, but it's the mark and badge, as Luther said, Suffering is really the true badge of the church. And suffering is by God's design. You know, we can always get a crowd. You know, we could get a crowd of thousands. Just have to do a raffle, give away cars, swallow goldfish, all kinds of things. Just run a circus. You can get a crowd, right? A lot of churches are filled with crowds. They show up for a lot of reasons, right? Suffering has a way of purging. It goes, kind of, kind of goes through like a wave through the congregation, so to speak. And, oh, you mean it costs something to stand for Christ? It costs something to be a disciple? There is, Jesus said, count the cost. There's a cost. Now, in, our, our, in America here, and the things we're going to look at here, it's not like other places. It may change. It may change faster than you can imagine. It may change. Count the cost. Suffering. You may be called to suffer. Some of you, God may tap on the door of your heart and say, hey, prepare to go to far-flung places. It's a mark of a great church, and God raises up people to say, look, I surrender my life. I'll go wherever it is. Faith, did, Faith and I did that years and years ago, and God brought us. Lo and behold, here we are with you, and you're our friends and family, and we love you. How about that? You would never have known us had, had we not. I had to, every time I heard a missions message, I was tempted to stand up or go down in front. I was just, Lord, whatever you want. And uh, the Lord made it clear it wasn't somewhere over there, it was here, and we've been here ever since, right? And, uh, and it's, been, it's been wonderful, really. But it's not been without suffering. Faith and I have suffered at points. We don't cry about it, uh, and we don't publish it, 
but there's been a cost to it. Not like in North Korea or China. In other places, the Sudan and places around the world, it may come to that, and it may come to that for all of us. And if you know Christ, there's ways that you have suffered, probably in smaller ways, some of them larger, but it's true. Don't be messed up by the world's values as you follow Christ. Look what he says the byline. What brings blessing and woes are almost exactly the opposite of what most people think. Wow, what does that mean? Well, let's look. First of all, you can. Uh, there, are, there are blessings that come with godliness, and there are woes that come with worldliness. Don't be confused by it. Don't be confused. And worldliness, let me say it, is not stuff. It's not having stuff. You can have all kinds of stuff. There are wealthy people that are godly people that recognize everything they have as God's. Worldliness is a mindset. Worldliness is an attitude. It's a carnal, godless attitude. It's a wrong estimation of things in in intangibles, abstract. Okay, be careful about that. In this land of plenty, we have so much. You know, we do. We live like kings. Be careful about that. It's not things. It can be. It can be bound up in that. But at the very core of worldliness is a mindset. It's the way that we look at things and we look at things temporal. Be careful about that. That's what he's calling us to. Jesus takes in our passage the things really that no one wants. And he says that they have his special blessing as a follower of Christ who's suffering. Such things as no one wants poverty. Who wants that? I don't want that. Poverty is not in and of itself a mark of godliness. There are those, some that teach that, you know. If you want to really follow Christ, just take a vow of poverty. That's crazy. That's nuts. Poverty is not a blessing in and of itself. But if in serving Christ, God calls you to poorness, to the lack of dollars, then God says, I, I will bless you. I will bless you now. Actually, that's present tense. I'll take care of you. But just to say, well, I'm just going to be poor because they're godly. Uh-uh. You can be very, very poor and very, very sinful in your heart. You know, poor people can be filled with covetousness. They just want what everybody else has. Poverty isn't the answer. That's not what he's talking about in a general sense. Uh, things, and so Jesus takes the things in our passage that nobody wants, like poverty, like hunger. Who wants to be hungry? Or tears? Who wants to weep? Or rejection? God made us social beings. He made us to fit in, to have friends and relationship. God is the, he's the core of that, the model of that, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the eternal relationship of the Godhead. Then God created Adam and Eve, had relationship with them. It was broken by sin. God reconciled that. Relationships. Who wants to be rejected? Nobody. And then he takes the things that everyone wants, right, in, in, our, in the core of us, money, food, entertainment, popularity. And what's he do? Jesus said, guess what, disciples? They'll never satisfy. If you set your heart on these things and these things alone, you'll never be satisfied. That's what he's saying. They're okay in their place, but you set your heart on, that's why I'm living. That's the modus operandi of my heart. They'll never satisfy. You'll always be thirsty, always hungry, always discontent. You want more and more and more, trying to cram it in, and it will never satisfy. Wow. And so what brings blessings and woes are almost exactly the opposite of what most people think. Well, what's the first contrasting result? Verses 17 through 23. You can count on God's blessing if, if you are called to suffer. And we all are in great ways and smaller ways because you've left everything to follow him. Remember, remember John and James? They left everything, and they followed him. They left the boats and the nets and everything, the sons of Zebedee and Peter and Andrew. They left everything. How about uh, Matthew? He left everything when he left the tax club. He left everything to follow. And so if, if, if in the leaving and in the following, God should call you to certain degrees of suffering, don't be surprised by that. God says there's a special benediction or blessing that he pronounces upon you. R.C. Sproul is, is, is right when he says so often, right now counts forever. 
Sometimes we don't think that. We think we're in the prelude and later, okay, great, and you know, we'll... No, right now in what happens in our lives counts forever, and God is the one who keeps count. And so how we live and how we serve, no matter what befalls us, no matter the difficulty, it counts forever. And so you can count on God's blessing if you suffer because you're following him like the disciples and have left everything. You see, your loyalty to Christ may produce suffering. It's the only imperative that I see in the passage in the original. He says, when that happens, you're commanded to rejoice. Now that the world would ever say that. He said, in fact, just start leaping around because uh, there is a great reward, underlying great. What do you, how big do you think it is if, if, if Jesus, who is God in flesh, says something's great? I mean, we say the bills are great, right? Some of us do. Uh, maybe one of us here says the bills are great, right? The Steelers, they're great, and the, so on. And, and the Senators, do we have the Senators anymore? Are they still in town? Okay, yeah, they're part of the, yeah. The, I didn't know the new owner in Chicago. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the, no, they're not too great, are they? Hopefully they were. The Hershey Bears are great. Boy, did they have a season. They're great. Now, when Jesus says the word great is your reward in heaven, now, is he given to hyperbole? I mean, we are. At Madison Avenue, everything's good, better, best, the greatest, you know, mouthwash and the greatest deodorant. No, this is unbelievable. And this, we talk like that, right? But when God's son says, great is your reward, he's not, he's just not filling the blank there. He means great. He says, when you follow me and you serve me and you're loyal to me and you suffer, Great. Rejoice. Start leaping around the house. Great is a reward. Right now, it's being prepared for you in heaven. Wow. That's neat. I love that. Remember that uh, Reader's Digest sweepstakes, right? And Ed McMahon, he's dead now, go up the house, ring the doorbell with that big pretend check, and you've just won the clearinghouse. Was that the clearinghouse? And some of you sent all that stuff in saying, I know this is my year. I hope you people would do that and go like, you got you got a better chance of being an astronaut going to the moon rather than that. But you know, the people be leaping around, celebrating, like you know, just with joy. That's the picture. The Lord says, just just start rejoicing, like the, uh, the like the disciples did after Jesus went to heaven when they the Sanhedrin called them in and and beat them up a little bit because they were preaching in the name of Jesus, and they went out rejoicing, like counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Wow, that's the right idea in the early chapters of Acts. It's, it's a whole different way of thinking than we think of here in comfy America. You know, we're so, we're so soft. We're so like, oh, oh, you know, <laughs> oh, you know, really. But it may happen. It may change. And certainly it does in small degrees. You may serve Christ and sort of in your work not quite fit in with the guys or the girls. And, and so when promotion comes, they're like, oh, he's sort of an odd person. She's, they don't fit in. And so you get passed over. That's a way of suffering for Christ. It is. Uh, we have suffered in our family. Uh, uh, I've been called uh, in days gone by by my own family. And I'm sure they long thought of, uh, forgot it, but a Bible thumper. And I thought, Bible thumper? Well, that sounds horrible. What's that? You know? And I'm like, oh, that hurt. That hurt a little bit, you know? I've received letters and notes that just uh, were, were horrendous things in preaching the gospel. I mentioned it to the men at Men's Fraternity, just, uh, just a couple of those, that, uh, that people were offended in preaching the Bible and, and feel very free to, to tell you that, you know, and, and so on. And and you go like, well, uh, as, a, as a friend of mine back then said uh, on that one occasion, I, I referred to the men, uh, you, those letters are a badge of honor. I said, really? Thank you for that. I didn't think of it like that. Yeah, keep that in the file. That's a rejoice. Start leaping around, you know. Wow, that's right. That, that's true. Well, as mentioned, Jesus just chosen his 12 disciples on the mountain. He descends with them onto the plain. 
you see. And the Sermon on the Mount, he went up to the mountain. It's a different location. And he begins to care for the large number of people and their physical needs. We see that by way of introduction, 17, 18, and 19. They're all their physical maladies, uh, demonic uh, oppression, and all those things that were going on. And Jesus, he heals them all. Don't, don't just go over that quickly, because if you want to know what heaven's going to be like, you get a glimpse of what heaven is like when God is on earth. And there's no more suffering. Now, what's the problem? You know, you go to these specialists, and a lot of times they say, we can't do any more for you. You, know, you ever read that in a text? Jesus saying, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I, this is beyond me. I, I don't, I'll have to refer you to the spiritual male clinic or something, down to Johns Hopkins. No, every one of them. He, he heals them. And, and for a glimpse, you say, well, what's heaven like? And isn't it encouraging as our, our bodies and our hips are kind of wasting away, our knees, right? We go like, well, what's it going to be like? up there? I can't even punt a football anymore. You know, I used to be able to blast it. Well, it's going to all be reversed. It's going to be better than that. Don't ever just read over that quickly. It's wonderful when you read that and see that. It's a t- taste of heaven on earth. Well, he begins, our Lord begins his first lesson with a newly formed 12 in verse 20. Uh, it's the first day of internship class. Incidentally, that's still the best way to teach and to learn uh, is by imitation and watching. It really is. My interns had spent, I uh, taught many, many men in gospel ministry. I had a part of that with the faculty in college and graduate school through the years. Taught hundreds of men, had a little bit of part, and had uh, 12 men that spent a year with me. And the impact of that was far greater, and 11 of them are continued to serve the Lord around the world. And, uh, oh, I see how to do that. They followed me around. They listened. They did projects. They did some teaching. They were instructed. They learned. We prayed together on our knees and all of that. And you can't beat that. You cannot beat that model that Jesus used. I know that Jim uses that. It's still the same thing in small groups. It's the same thing we do with our men and our ladies. Small group. Uh, small group teaching by imitation. And that's what this is all about here. Well, the Beatitudes. There are four of them, A, B, C, and D. You see it on your sheet. Uh, And he begins looking at his disciples. Here it is, lesson one. It's opening day. Formal school is in session. Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Is is present tense. It is yours right now. Now, he is saying. Hey, what's he mean? If you should find yourself financially poor because you have followed me, Jesus is saying, be encouraged, for you are blessed. You are wealthy right now beyond your wildest dreams. Wealthy. That's what he's saying. You're a son uh, of God, a child of the king. Wealthy as you count real wealth. Our problem is is we count the wrong things as wealth. We're counting things like Federal Reserve notes and other things, right? And uh, we're forgetting, what's the Federal Reserve note anyway? Holy smokes. You mean the Federal Reserve says it's worth something? Be careful about that. That should be a reminder to you. The only thing good on a bill is it's a track, actually. It says, in God we trust. I like that. That's the best part of the whole dollar bill, right, on the greenback? Wow. Most of that's like monopoly money. Man, be careful about that. You are wealthy indeed, beyond your wildest dreams. Number one, this is different from uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3, where the Lord pronounces a benediction, blessed are you who uh, are poor in spirit. There he's talking to the crowd and he's saying, you know, you've got to be spiritually bankrupt. You've got to view yourself as lost, under judgment, wicked, sinful, needing a Savior. You were born that way. All of us were. I was. You are. And you have to come that way, humbly. The way to the cross is low. He's not talking about spiritual poverty here. He's talking about You open your wallet, and you don't have any money in it because you've been doing what God wants you to do, and there's a suffering that's involved with that. You can't buy anything, maybe. Now, listen, there's going to come a day when that happens. 
Have you ever read Revelation 13? Uh, that's the section that deals with the Antichrist. How about the 666? Remember that? The mark of the man, triplicate, like the, it's the Trinity, Trinitarian uh, of man. When Satan so fills a man, he's like an incarnate of Satan. And uh, you won't be able to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. You won't have any money. You won't, though that remnant that's on earth during those terrible, terrible final days. And I don't know if it's going to be a chip in the forehead or a computer chip in your arm. We're almost not dealing with cash anymore anyway. You ever go to a store and, and, and buy something with cash? They're almost surprised. Oh, well, what's this? Oh, it's money. And then if you give them a fair-sized bill, they can't even make change. They keep like 50 cents in the drawer I'm kidding, a little bit more, but not too much. Oh, we've been seeing this since 1977. Don't you have a credit card? Don't you have this? Don't you have that? Can't we do it digitally, you know? And you can imagine how easy that would be to control people. Just, just uh, do that. Or inflate the money. Make it worth nothing. Just flood it. Spend it like it's going out of style, and, and it just becomes worth less and less and less and less. And, uh, and pretty, pretty soon, uh, you're, it's easy to control people. I can easily see how that would happen in Revelation uh, chapter 13. Uh, and so he's not talking about spiritually poor. He's talking about not having money because of your discipleship and your loyalty to Christ. Uh, and that doesn't happen too much here and now, does it? But it does happen in places around the world. It does. In leaving all and following him in faithful discipleship, these, these disciples, and they would, every one of these 12, not counting Judas, they would find themselves without money. And there are four different ways in the Bible that people may become poor. Let's identify what he's talking about. You may be poor, A, he's not talking about becoming poor because you're lazy. Look, if you're lazy and you're poor, you deserve not to have any money. If you don't, have, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. I mean, that's a simple... A uh, simple thing, a uh, principle that's taught in the Bible. That's why wherever there have been Christians, there's been the blessing of industry and hard work, and, and they actually show up for work and, and actually work eight or ten hours and do it diligently. Why? They're working under the Lord, as the Scriptures say, and they're productive, and uh, they're, they're, they're careful with their budgeting. They give the first fruits to the Lord. They live on the other 90% or so, and, and they're careful with it. They're careful, and they invest, and, and, and they live within their means, and it produces a society that makes things and uh, is stable and is in time prosperous. You see that. You see that wherever the Reformation was. You see that in New England and in the United States in the early colonial days. They worked. It's working. And if you're poor because you don't work, you deserve to, to go hungry. Hey, that's motivational, isn't it? Isn't it motivational? Mm -hmm. I remember our church in Indiana, it was right on the highway, and people would stop from time to time, come down to the office, and they would ask me, you know, for a handout. Can the church give me a handout? Why do you need a handout? Well, we, uh, we're hungry. And that always pulls. You know, pastor tends to be very merciful, and you want to believe people. A lot of times they're lying right through their teeth to you for whatever they're going to do with it. But we err on the side of mercy, and I always do that, and I'd rather do that. But sometimes I got this idea, uh, just thinking it's better to work and, and to receive, right? And I said, you know what you could do? You know, I really need these front windows. Uh, if you would just take an hour and wash these windows, you know, we'd really appreciate it. And, and, uh, and then I could make sure that uh, you, you get covered for that and you could go down to the grocery store and, and, and whatever, or Penguin Point or whatever it was there, and get something to eat. You can't believe almost everybody said no way. They said, no way. And then, and then when I talked to our, our uh, elders about it and that day, they said, oh, don't do that. We could get sued. Imagine if they're up on the ladder and they're washing. I mean, what a nutty day, right? Doing something good for them. They're feeling good, right? They did something. They earned something. They went down about, oh, no, if they fall off the ladder, I can see $100,000. There goes our insurance, our liability. They're, they're working there. There's no workman's comp. And they're like, oh, my word. Anyway, look. If you may be poor because you're lazy. But remember Proverbs, the lesson of the ant. 
We ate ants in the house, and ants had picnic. But Jesus, the Word of God says there's a lesson of the ant. What do they do? They prepare their food in summer. So when you drop your, your hot dog roll or bun and it gets carried away, have you ever noticed how strong those little things are? Man, they carry multiple times their body weight over their head into the hole. What? They're, they work while it's summertime. There's a time to work. Second the reason people are poor in the Bible is, is through natural disasters. It happens. Floods hit. People get wiped out. Famines occur. Saw that with Joseph in Egypt and God's protection of his people there, right? And, and all that. And, and it does happen. And we have to have a heart for that. Uh, down in New Orleans when that terrible hurricane hit there. And the, those people were in a very, very hard way. And many of them have never recovered yet uh, down in the, that area. There's a third reason. He's not talking about becoming poor due to unjust oppressors, victims. People will rob and steal and and, uh, and do it. The governments will do that. Uh, neighborhood hoodlums will do that. Uh, unscrupulous people will do that. People have investments. Like, I got a deal you can't, uh, can't refuse. And then they walk away with what you've been trying to save up for retirement all your life. And I mean, this crazy guy down, what's his name down in New York City? Anybody remember? He's in jail now. What's his name? Madoff. That's right. Thanks. I, I knew you would know that. Yeah, Bernie, Bernie's thinking about what I would do differently now. I think he's doing that. But uh, made off with all, what terrible things. And people suffer through that. People who thought they had something on a piece of paper. They got every month or quarterly. Hey, we're rich. Next month, you got zero. And I saw some of those poor people interviewed. Now I have nothing. Not, what a terrible thing to be victims of that. And that happens. It happens in this world. But D's, what he's talking about is is he's telling you of people becoming poor due to serving Christ. These would probably be better, be, probably be well off if they have chosen not to serve. They could do disciples in their background, or Matthew, or Levi, and, and, and all the rest of that. And, uh, and so it's so. It is, uh, it is really, really, really so. And so Jesus assures them, of their immediate wealth right now. Yours is the kingdom of God. In spite of their present poverty, they were in possession of an everlasting kingdom. A couple men write these, Reichen and others. Don't be caught up into thinking that the best way to measure God's blessing is by looking at someone's bank book balance. It may mean something, but uh, uh, Americans, we, we simply think, well, God's blessed me, I've got millions, or I've got thousands, or I've got enough to pay my bills. No, it's, uh, and, uh, and that's the error of this prosperity gospel. And God wants everyone wealthy and rich. That's crazy. That's nutty. You don't see that in Jesus' words here. Blessed are you when you're poor. Another man writes, poverty itself is not a blessing. It isn't. It isn't. People who are poor in Christ have God's blessing, Spiritual riches uh, now, unimaginable treasures in the life to come. And so Jesus is warning people. He's warning his disciples that money is only a temporary blessing at best. And it doesn't last forever, does it? Have you ever noticed that? Someone said who made a lot of money, oh, making money is never the problem. It's keeping it. It sort of sprouts wings and flies away. And then where did it go? And I remember... Uh, uh, Haddon Robinson in teaching on the shrewdness in, in Luke 17, that money is always another's. It's always another's. You get home with your sweaty palm, with your paycheck, if you get a paycheck anymore, a lot of times it's direct deposit, right? And you get home, made your income, they are, the government already whacked off their, their huge hunk, and then you got a pile of bills there. Uh, that's the old way, pardon me, some of you do it all digitally and all that, I know. But, uh, and then it's gone. And if you've got any left over, put in the bank. And uh, we haven't had too much inflation, but they say it's coming. And they say, well, your money's not worth what it was once worth. Why? Inflation. You didn't take it. They didn't take it. It's just not worth it. So you need 10 bucks to buy a loaf of bread. Or $5 will buy you that seven grain down at Wegmans. I love that bread. But I often think about that. $5 for a loaf of bread. I used to go down for 19 cents and get that Wonder Bread. And I grew up eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and that was all right for me. But I love that seven-grain bread. That is so good. Ask Julie about that. She's ahead of their whole thing now. 
Well, blessed are you when you become financially poor because of your loyalty to Jesus. And they would. They would become impoverished. The, the 11, and then Paul, and those that followed in places around the world today. And it may change here. Don't be surprised. B, if you should find yourself hungry because of your service to Jesus, you have a special blessing. Uh, we find in verse 21, Blessed are you when you hunger now. The emphasis is in the present now. For you, future, will be satisfied. There's coming a day when you'll be utterly satisfied. Utterly. The same God who provides for the poor feeds the hungry. He's talking here about physical uh, hunger and service of Christ. Uh, something that uh, we Americans know almost nothing about, right? Have we ever missed a meal? I don't know too many people that have missed meals. Um, God has a way of taking care of us. But it may happen. It just may, 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 may be not able to buy or sell without the mark. And the other tyrannical governments and the way things go on in, 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 in hunger. And the disciples certainly hungered. God has promised that if you hunger now, following him and your loyalty to him, you'll be stuffed. There's a, there's a sense spiritually, and I don't want to get off, but a secondary sense where uh, we hunger, we hunger spiritually. You know that God alone can satisfy that. He made you to be satisfied only with himself. Nothing else. You can cram it in there. Hedonism, stuff, experiences, friends, and they all, uh, to, to a, a, unless they're sinful, have a place, but they'll never fill that deep, deep, deep satisfaction that only Jesus fills. That hunger, only Jesus will fill that. Even in the best of days, even in the best of marriages, there's still a longing for more. It's that longing that's to be filled only with Jesus. I love faith in you with all my heart, but she cannot fill the place that only the Lord can fill in my life. And it's true with each one of us, each one of us. That's spiritual hunger. That's hungering. Now let me give you an example. Keep your finger in Luke, but look at 2 Corinthians. I want to I show you what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4 and following, where he speaks autobiographically about his own experience in his loyalty and service to the Lord Jesus, how much he suffered. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4, um, because they were questioning Paul's, at Corinth, his apostleship. Uh, and so he, has, he feels like he has to defend himself, so he writes in this letter. And listen to the things that Paul suffered, and he hungered as a part of it. In, in 2 Corinthians 6, 4, and following. Look what he says. Let's pick it up. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, in hardships, and distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. There it is. That's what the Lord was talking about here. Hungering. If you're hungry because you're following him and you have occasion to suffer lack of food, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, and the Holy Spirit, and in sincere, in sincere love, and truth of speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness, in the right hand, and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report, good report, genuine, yet regarded as impostors, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. That's Paul's commentary of his own life based upon the words of Jesus here. Wow, that's something. And so the Lord takes what we don't want or what nobody wants, turns it upside down and says, that's, those are the things when following me, if you suffer, you will have a particular blessing indeed. Phil Riken writes, and I quote, We will drink deeply from the fountains of his grace. We will eat richly from the banquet of his word. He alone satisfies. And he does. He alone. And people who do not have a craving and appetite for God are those that do not feed on his word. Let me suggest that. If you want to hunger for God, get to know him. Open the book. 
study the book, turn the TV off, cut out some of the waste time, stick a little Bible in your, your purse or in your pocket, take it with you. A lot of dead time you could just read along, along with a, an appointment time with God every single day. And your appetite will grow. You ever have something uh, you hadn't had in a long time? Maybe you like pizza. A lot of people like pizza. Right? You, get a good, you get into a good pizza, right? And a few days later, you're going like, mm, I'm remembering that pizza. <laughs> and you'll, you may go down and get it again, right? And you'll keep doing it until you get a bad one. You're like, ah, I don't always think I'm not going to have any of those anymore. But you've got to get into it, right? And then you've got to get into the Word, and it develops a hunger and appetite. Into the Word, into the Word. Same thing. And, and God will fill you both now and then. Third blessing, if you weep in your service for Christ and your loyalty for Him, know that one day you're going to be filled with utter laughter. That's what the Lord says here. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. For we will find our joy in Jesus. Here, here He's referring to all the sorrows that we may suffer in life, and there are many of them. There are many, many sorrows in life. This is a broken and a crying world. If you don't see it, take off your glasses and rub your eyes and take a good look. People are hurting and sorrowful. But God created us with the ability to laugh. Isn't that great? That's God's idea. Humor, laughter. I think it's phenomenal when you think of God creating uh, objects like us that when we see certain things or hear certain stories, they strike us as humorous, and we have a body response to it. Ha, 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 We just let it go, right? Faith came upstairs last night and said, I heard laughter up here. What were you doing? Jonathan's down in North Carolina. He's looking at a graduate school down there for the weekend. And uh, at the end of him, I said, hey, i got to tell you this, this joke about George Bush before you get off. George and Barbara Bush, it was, it's really funny. I'll, I'm, I'm going to tell it to you just because I... Anyway, uh, the, the, they're in Texas, and George and Barbara show up. Uh, this is the old, old, older Bush. And uh, they got the limo, and they jump out. George runs in to get, get uh, some popcorn at the store, and Barbara sees who's filling the tank up. And she knows him, so she jumps out of the car and uh, has a wonderful talk with him. Wonderful, wonderful talk. And, uh, and George comes out and sees Barbara talking to the attendant, uh, doesn't say anything, gets in the car, and they drive away. And as they're driving, uh, George says, what was going on back there? And she said, oh, that was my old high school boyfriend. Oh, really? George was feeling pretty good about himself at that point. He said, well, you know, he's, uh, he's pumping gas, huh? And you, you did pretty good for yourself marrying the president of the United States. And Barbara didn't miss a beat. She said, oh, oh no, George, you got it all wrong. If I married him he would have been president. <laughs> so I had to get it into Jonathan just before. I just enjoy a good joke, even if I tell it myself and laugh out loud, you know. And famous. <laughs> so they go, what's going on up here? I had to squeeze it in before he ran off the phone, you know. But God made us with the ability to see something, hear something, and just laugh. And that's a, that's a God-given thing. Now, it's a perverted thing that we live in a world where people twist things and, and immoral things and off-color things and really trashy things, and they tee hee <laughs> and laugh about those kind of things. That's not what the Lord's talking about here. Do you know that heaven is going to be filled with laughter? I bet you never thought about that. It's not going to be like Comedy Central. Some of you have no idea what that is, and I hardly watch it, but our kids quoted from it from time to time. Nothing like that. It's going to be pure laughter, pure joy, sublime. You ever hear godly people, holy people love the Lord and the joy that's expressed and the humor and the sharing and all of that? It's going to be that far beyond in the days to come. In glory. Look, we're going to walk the streets of gold, look around, and your first impression, you'll be utterly overwhelmed, first of all, that you're there when you recognize it's all because of the blood of Christ. And the joy just might overwhelm you, and you just might, with joyful rejoicing, just laugh and laugh with utter joy. That's what Jesus said. Look, today is a day of crying and weeping. And when we serve Him, it may come to us. Don't be surprised by that. I talk about different reasons why we may weep uh, here in this world. 
in all of these and more, number one, we weep for our own sins, right? As Christians, we ought not sin. But we repent of them, and sometimes tears and godly tears lead to repentance, and godly repentance leads to forgiveness and cleansing, and we need that. We've grieved the Spirit of God, and we ought to take it to heart when we, when, when, when we repent as believers of our sin. But more than that, we weep for the sins of others, don't we? We lament the dishonor they do God and, and, and the hurt, and so we weep for that. We, third, we weep for the sins of our society. Knowing, uh, knowing also we're implicated in them. Do you weep for the babies that are slaughtered from the womb? That would be the safest place in all the world. And we've had, what do they say, 40 or 50 million babies slaughtered here? It's not a part of a woman's body. She's carrying a living person. I weep for that. You want to see an example of, of uh, implication of that? Look at Daniel in Daniel 9 and Daniel, one of his great prayers. Or he's, he's praying uh, uh, to the Lord and he, he uses we all the way through. We have sinned. We have sinned. We have sinned. Daniel's one of the most godly, holy men we know in the Bible. And yet he is totally identified with his people and he's implicated by the sins of his people. And so are we as Americans. We ought to weep for that. And fourth, we weep for the lost, don't we? Or we should. And if not, you say, God, what's the matter with my hard heart? I ought to have a, a tender heart for lost people around me. What's the matter with me? And if you're not even thinking about the people around you and their need of Christ, you have a hard heart. You need to ask the Lord to soften that. They have tears for that. I've wept for lost people, and so should you, praying that God would rescue them from hell. Life is short. Hell is forever. And we ought to pray that way. Pray that way for loved ones and ones around us so that God gives us clean. How about five? We ought to weep for those who suffer. And there are many. Did you look at the coal mining uh, report? Those miners at 29 that were, could, uh, you know, it's, it does, it, does it touch your heart? It ought to. People suffer like that. Or uh, still in Haiti, it just grieves my heart. And and that they're horrendous things. A lot of things, I, I don't want to know the details on what he did and what she did and killed the kid and all that. I don't want to know. It just, it just, it just it, it overwhelms me in that. But we, ought, we, have to, we have to weep for those that suffer. Christ did, you know. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. He, he wept over Jerusalem. And, and, and we ought to bear that likeness. And finally, we, ought to, we, we, we do, don't we? We weep for lost ones that we have lost for loved ones, our family members, and those dear that we have lost, knowing that they are gone and will not return, will not see them again in this life. There's a huge hole there. God gives grace and he comforts. But we weep for them. It's never the same. Sometimes, you know, they, they interviewed the, the, the mayor or someone there in West Virginia on NPR, and they asked them about, you know, life after now that they discovered the four they thought might be alive. And, well, we'll grieve, but uh, we'll get on. And life will continue. Yeah, it'll continue, but it's never the same. Never. Never. And some of you know that. All of you know that to a greater lesser degree. And so we weep. But one day God promises to turn all our sorrow to joy. <laughs> what laughter there'll be in heaven. What laughter. Life here is sometimes so filled with sorrow, we wonder if we'll ever laugh again. I've, I've thought that. But, but, you know the expression, and, and, and I don't know if it comes from this, but the expression, he who laughs, laugh. No, he who laughs, last, laughs best. I don't know if it comes from this, but it sort of does fit this, doesn't it? That uh, in heaven, what joy we'll share. Well, finally, D, the last... Is the suffering, if you are despised or reviled, hated for him, rejoice. It's a command right there. Rejoice. Leap around for great, Jesus said, is your reward in heaven. That is God's preparing it right on the spot. This is suffering for Christ. And you do that. And yet maybe we're not like some countries, thank God for that. It may change, but we may suffer in our family. I've suffered in my family. I've suffered in school and a testimony for Christ. I've suffered in business, and some of you have, in lesser and greater degrees, and in the community. 
and being misunderstood and maybe cut out or we don't want, you, you know, uh, in, in greater or lesser degrees if you let the light of Christ radiate if you're following him. So don't be surprised by that. It's a badge of a true disciple. And so there's a blessing that will be yours. Well, finally and quickly, there's a second contrasting result, and I, I don't have much to say about this, but it's this. You can count on a huge reversal of fortune if you refuse to avoid what our world values. Huge. He turns it upside down, in fact. It's a, you talk about going from the bottom to the top. Now we're going from the top to the bottom. And Jesus pronounces four woes that come from this attitude of worldliness among his disciples. Again, he's talking to his disciples, this attitude. There are woes that come from worldliness. Woes is kind of the idea of sadness over the way, uh, a sense of sadness uh, over um, the choices that are made. A, he says uh, in verse 24, woe to you who are rich. Woe, sadness. In other words, uh, if we're striving to find happiness, I mean, that's the reason we live, is for here and now in the material or wealth. Then here and now is all the comfort you have. That's it. It's like paid in full. Now, God uh, certainly blesses some, some of his own with some great abilities and some wealth and and some abilities, and some assets, and some by family, and some by earning, and all of that. We said industry and all that, and it tends to make people prosperous. That's right. We're not talking about wealth in and of itself. But if you make it, that's your reason for living as a disciple of Christ. You are messed up. And how sad, Jesus says, whoa, if that's the reason you get out of bed every day. He's saying, in essence, enjoy it. It's going fast, and that's all you're going to get. Paid in full. Kind of the idea he's saying. Nothing wrong with wealth. If God gives it, and you work and say, don't let that be the reason you live. But follow Christ. And he says, you'll be blessed. Number B, if you are filled up with the world now, satisfied. Look at that. Well, woe unto you. Uh, woe unto you who are well fed now. You're satisfied with the food and everything else. You're satisfied without much of an appetite for God, then you are going to go hungry without in the days to come. You're spiritually complacent. Most likely you are. If you are filled up with these things, and, you know, your heart is only so big. You can't just keep filling up with all sorts of things. God wants us to love him, serve him with all our heart. And not just a footnote. Uh, it's really revolutionary. We're not conservative holding on. We're, we ought to be revolutionary in the way we look at life, in the way we live for Christ. Satisfied. Hmm. See, if you're not serious about spiritual things now, there's a lot of that in the church. A lot of, woe to you if you laugh now, for you will mourn and weak. Again, talking to his disciples. If you're not serious about spiritual things now, you know, there's some things to be serious about. It's serious about uh, God's Word and what God's doing in your life and what He wants you to do. Who doesn't like a good joke? Who doesn't like to laugh? God made us that way. But there's a time to be serious. And I love it when, uh, when young, young ones, uh, young preteens, teens, and young adults are dead serious in things of the Lord. They love to have fun. They play sports, do whatever, but they're serious about what life's about. They're not very many, but uh, that can be you and should be you. And not just this glove, ha, 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 yuck it all up all the time. Nothing's really serious. School's not serious. Nothing. No. Be serious about what you need to be serious about. Enjoy life to the fullest, but be serious about the things of God and serve Him. That's what he's saying here. And if you do that, if you don't do that, you are going to regret and wish that you were. And if you do that, 
then you will laugh in the days to come. You will. And finally, D, if you strive for popularity now, that's what all that business is about in 26. Woe to you when, when all, circle the word all, when all men, all men speak well of you. That's the point. For that is how the, their fathers treated the false prophets. That's striving for uh, popularity right now, to please everyone. Oh, please, don't even try to do that. To be a man pleaser, a woman pleaser, right? You just want to please everybody all the time. Guess what? That's not, the, that's not what you're supposed to do. Now, we're not to be abrasive. We're not to call attention to our, because we're rude. God help us on that. But uh, if I were to be a man pleaser, I wouldn't even preach this message today. Oh, someone's going to be hurt here. They're going to get their nose out of joint. They may never come back. You know? God doesn't call me. He calls me to please Him. I have to give an account to Him. I'm the delivery guy. Here comes the Sunday news. Here it is. Right? That's what it is. And don't you do it. You know, don't strive to be most popular. You know, don't do that. Be careful about that. Uh, you know, you ever read the Old Testament where Jeremiah, he was not voted most popular in his class. Right? But the false prophets were... They told the people what they wanted to hear. Give us more. Tell us more how wonderful we are. Oh, isn't that great? We don't want to hear the word sin. That makes me feel bad. I'm going to end up with psychological problems. Believe me, you already got them, you know? I'm going to tell you what God's Word says, and He provides the antidote and the remedy, all right? So what? don't be offensive. Don't have bad breath or B.O. Don't, don't, don't put people off with that. Be pleasant. Be nice. Be gentle. But don't make it your mode to please everybody. All right? If you do, he says, you're in bad company. Very bad company. The false prophets, you're with them. I am? Yes. You don't want to be with them. They could never speak God's word because they were, oh, I'm, I'm afraid they may not like me. So what? Worse things have happened, right? God, God says, woe unto you if you're like that. And if you do what's right, and you do suffer, guess what? You'll be blessed. In fact, rejoice. One day, R.C. Sproul tells a story when he was in seminary. He went to a, a liberal seminary that had one Orthodox professor, uh, and uh, he was a, a John Gerstner, one of Debbie, Debbie's favorite. Uh, John Gerstner was there and uh, helped him all the way through. And one day, R.C. told the story. He was asked to preach in chapel, and he, he went, and uh, he counted a great honor, and uh, he preached. And afterward, there were three professors who didn't believe in the Bible, didn't believe in the divinity of Christ, had R.C., as a, uh, he was a student then, up against the wall and their finger in his face. And these were men that he took classes from, men that he, uh, you know, he uh, steamed them because of their advanced training and all, and began to wonder if maybe I'm, Maybe I committed a great sin here, you know, and all that. He went down to Dr. Gerstner's office, and John Gerstner picked him up off the ground, so to speak, and said, R.C., that was a tremendous message. It was so wonderful. And you know what? And he told him what happened about the three prophets. He said, guess what? Just start jumping around here. The Bible says you're commanded now. Rejoice. Start leaping around for joy because Right now, God is preparing for you a great reward in heaven. So you're doubly blessed. You delivered the goods, and you got something in the future. And that's the right way to look at it. If R.C. had been, oh, they're going to be upset, or I want them to think well of me. You know, in academia, there's a lot of pressure, you know, to be one of the good old boys' system. You know, I want to get tenure. I want to get this. I want to get that. And so we sort of don't say all the truth, and there's a lot of that. You can write that across a lot of schools in higher education. And those that stand for the truth, there's sometimes a suffering that goes with that. Wow. Wow. So you can count on a huge reversal of fortunes in the woe section if you refuse to avoid what our world values. Well, what can we say? Lessons for life and will be done. Number one, no matter what, no matter what happens, no matter what, Strive daily to be loyal and faithful to Jesus Christ. Strive to be loyal. Lord, help me to be a loyal follower of you, not just a fair-weather friend. Okay? Let's do that. 
And you'll stand out. You will. And God will make a blessing out of you. Loyal. Remember the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the, and the golden uh, uh, statue and they played the horns. Everybody fell down. There were three that were standing up. They stood out. They stood out. Well, let's do it again here. Maybe you guys can't hear. Do it. Stood out. We will never bow, right? Be loyal. loyal. He's loyal to you. Number two, in following and serving him, you may suffer. You may. You may suffer. We talk about poverty, hunger, tears, scorn. But if you do, God promises a special blessing. Some of it here and some of it in the future. So rejoice. Rejoice. Don't be wimpy. Don't be weak like most American Christians are. We should uh, expect it to come. This experiment in human history of the United States is really rare. Read your history book and you'll know what I mean. Just bless God. He promises to bless you if uh, you should suffer. Number three, don't be fooled by our world's values. Know that... uh, the world and, and all of that stuff is going to soon pass away, according to the Word of God. Don't be fooled by their wares and what they're selling and enticing you. Learn to be wise and discerning and to see things for what they really are. And it's not your TV set. It isn't. It's the Word of God. God tells us what reality is. Number four. Number four. If you choose poorly, if you do, you will groan. That's the woe section, as Jesus told us. Woe. You will groan. And you'll have many, many regrets. Oh, I want to help keep you from that. And finally, number five and last, number five, if you've never come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe you're here and you've never heard that you must be born again. You're not a Christian by birth. You're not a Christian by baptism. You're not a Christian because you came from a certain family. You must come at a certain point in your life confessing the fact that you're a sinner, that you're lost, and come to receive Christ the Lord. is a simple prayer of faith, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. Thank you for dying in my place. You endured my wrath. Thank you. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord should be saved. Maybe that's you. If I can help you in that, I want to do that even today. I've been praying that maybe someone today would come to know Christ the Lord as Savior. Well, school's out for summer. Not. Nothing like first day of school, amen? Three of you. That's it. That's the way it is. That's it. Well, Jesus' first day of training on the Sermon on the Plain. Shall we stand and be dismissed?